Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Ladine's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. There are lots of reasons why lawyers and non-lawyers alike should expect the Supreme Court to explain itself, especially when it's upsetting the status quo. That's today's guest, Stephen Vladek, nationally recognized expert on the federal court and author of The Shadow Docket. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardena, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Jackie, it's great to be back on Sidebar today. Tell us about our guest and topic. I'm very excited about our guest today. The Supreme Court has always had the authority to issue emergency rulings in exceptional circumstances, but since 2017, the court has dramatically expanded its use of the behind-the-scenes shadow docket, regularly making decisions that affect millions of Americans without public hearings and without explanation that leave lawyers and citizens uninformed about the reasons for their decisions. The court's conservative majority has used the shadow docket to greenlight restrictive voting laws, support abortion bans, roll back LGBTQ equal protection, strike environmental protection processes, and to curtail immigration policies. For these reasons, many believe that the Supreme Court is veering towards a political and ideological agenda rather than maintaining a historical balance of constitutional legal reasoning. Jackie, if this is true, Americans should be worried about the recent diversion from the traditional role of the Supreme Court as an independent third branch of our constitutional democracy. University of Texas professor Stephen Vladek is a nationally recognized expert on the federal courts. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. A highly respected academic and practicing attorney, a fellow podcaster, Steve is the co-host with Professor Bobby Chesney of the popular and award-winning National Security Law Podcast. Steve, welcome to Sidebar. Thanks, Jackie. It's great to be with you. Steve, I understand that you're from a family of lawyers. So before we delve into your research and writing about the Supreme Court, I'm interested in whether you think growing up in a multi-generational lawyer family influenced your viewpoints. I think it's been indispensable in shaping who I am and shaping how I think about things. I tell this story not to embarrass my little sister, but I think it's illustrative. When I was a third-year law student, she was an undergrad, and so she came to the moot court finals where I was arguing before a panel of judges. And at the end of the argument, she came up to me and she said, I finally get it. And I said, get what? She said, Thanksgiving, because we grew up in a family where fighting about things always took on a bit of a legal analysis bent, even if we weren't formally trained as lawyers. So I think it's been instrumental in sort of how I approach almost everything. And, and I've been very lucky to come from a family of such overachieving do-gooder lawyers. So you didn't coin the phrase, the shadow docket, but your recently published book, The Shadow Docket, 
how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic is not only a New York Times bestseller, as I mentioned, it has shown a huge spotlight on a relatively unknown aspect of the Supreme Court. Can you briefly explain to our non-lawyer listeners what is the shadow docket, how does it work, and what impact it's having on current law? The term, as you say, I mean, Will, Will Bode coined it in 2015, is this evocative shorthand that was just meant to be a descriptive umbrella for everything the Supreme Court does other than its merits docket. That is to say, everything that the court hands down by way of a ruling besides the 60-ish fancy opinions we get every April, May, and June in cases that went through multiple rounds of briefing and argument. Just by the numbers, that slice, the merits docket, the 60-some-odd rulings the court hands down each year, is really about 1% of its output. The shadow docket is worth studying unto itself. We ought to pay more attention to the other 99%. If anything, the last eight years have really driven home just how much important stuff the Supreme Court decides through unsigned and typically unexplained orders. And that's really what I set out to try to convey and explain and introduce folks to in writing this book. It's an incredibly accessible book with deep historical background to really place what's happening now in context. But before we move to that historical context, most of us know that someone appeals a case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court then decides that they're going to hear that case. The parties submit briefs. There might be a lot of other interested parties that are allowed to submit briefs as well to influence the court's decision. There's an oral argument, and we all sit waiting for the decision. And that's those 50 to 60 decisions that we finalize in usually June. Where do these other ones come from, and how do they get decided? The irony, Jackie, is that those decisions are themselves a product of the shadow docket. For the first 101 year that existed, the Supreme Court's docket was entirely mandatory. What that meant in practical terms is that if the Supreme Court had the power to hear an appeal, it had to hear it. And there was no discretion. There was no choice on the part of the justices. With the rise of the court's discretion has come a whole bunch of additional process where now there's a second layer in most cases. We call it the cert stage or the certiorari stage where the parties are trying to persuade the court to take their case and add it to its discretionary docket. This started in very small drips and drabs in 1891. It really gains a lot of velocity in 1925. But the the short version is that the court today has a docket that's almost entirely discretionary. I mean, just to take one example, during the court's current term, it's decided 58 cases on the merits docket, 57 of those were cases the justices chose to decide. And so the first, before we get to any of the more recent developments, the larger point here is that the amount of decision-making and the amount of strategic and tactical behavior that now takes place before we ever get to those fancy merits cases with the multiple rounds of briefing and the oral argument is actually not just a significant chunk of the court's work by volume, but also a really significant chunk of the court's work by impact. As much as I have studied the Supreme Court, I wasn't aware of the history as you had defined and described it. For 150 years, the Supreme Court was originally described as the least dangerous branch, and it really didn't have a ton of power or prestige. 
and they had very little control over what they did. In fact, they were forced to go out and ride circuit across an ever-expanding country, something that they all hated, and apparently they had to pay for it out of their own pocket. It wasn't really until the 20th century that we see the courts start to say, hey, we want more control over what we do. And you bring up some really interesting stories that it's not just about choosing cert, but actually choosing the question and sometimes defining the question that they're going to answer, such as in the Dobbs case where the parties didn't ask them to overturn Roe, but the court ended up introducing that question once the composition of the court changed. This wasn't an accident. The real sort of progenitor of these reforms, then Chief Justice, former President William Howard Taft, envisioned these reforms specifically as a way of changing the Supreme Court's role. A group of judges whose principal job was just resolving each of the cases that just happened to fall into their laps to a group of judges whose job was to give law and to sit back and exist above and apart from the fray of ordinary judicial business and just be a constitutional court and not just a court of last resort. Steve, does this system require a chief justice to use their discretion in a manner that engenders trust among the American public? Is it fair to observe that the application of this type of discretion by the current chief justice isn't achieving the level of historic trust among the public that's required for the court to maintain a level of integrity? The Chief Justice Mitchell obviously plays an important role in shaping all these conversations. One of the oddities about how the structural reforms affect the court is it actually diminishes the internal power of the Chief Justice because it's any four justices now who can choose to put a case onto the court's docket. The chief has no special vote or power in that respect. I guess the, the larger point, and, and really like just to go back to sort of why I, why it was so important to me to write this book at this moment, is that I think we have a tendency to look at the Supreme Court as the sum total of its merits docket. The Supreme Court is defined by the big decisions, by Dobbs, by Bruin, by affirmative action, by student loans. And what that really obscures is how much the justices are cultivating their docket, how much the justices are choosing the fact that those are going to be the cases it decides, and how much both strategic and tactical behavior that begets, not just by the justices, Mitchell including the chief, but by lower courts, by lawyers, by basically everyone who has any stake in the system. And all of that behavior is unspoken. But because of this use of the shadow docket, we end up without public oral arguments, no briefs by parties or friends of the court, no written opinion, no dissents, no concurred opinions. It is just shocking to me that this type of huge change in how the Supreme Court decisions are made has, for the most part, gone into effect with very little public discussion. Two different things happened. First, for a very long time, the Supreme Court was dominated by some pretty centrist moderates. And so there just wasn't a lot of public conversation about real and perceived shifts in basically the structural function of the court, the middle of which was tended by a Justice Powell or a Justice O'Connor or a Justice Kennedy doesn't look to the public, right? Like it's that out of step with its predecessors, even if that's simply a 
a sort of a temporary reality as opposed to a, a structural one. Part of this is that I don't think we were paying attention before recently. And part of it is that as much as the certiorari part of the story has been with us at least since the late 1980s, I mean, it's 1988 when Congress gives the court virtually unlimited discretion over its docket. The other piece of the story, the use of emergency applications, is very much a more recent phenomenon, Mitchell, that postdates when we went to law school and that I think had previously been drowned out. We are going to take a brief break. When we return, our guest, Steve Vladek, author of The Shadow Docket, is going to help us better understand why the dramatically expanded use of this judicial shortcut may be contributing to the public's mistrust of the current Supreme Court. Are you getting ready to start your bar prep journey? Kaplan is the only major bar review offering live instruction with both live and on-demand classes. With Kaplan's Bar Prep, you get the ideal amount of structure and guidance, no matter how you choose to prep. Join a real-time or on-demand class, stay on track with personalized study plans, and learn from expert attorneys. Kaplan helps thousands of professionals pass the bar each year. Start your journey today. Find your bar review at captest.com bar. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law School prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm. Law practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. ProCertis is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Welcome back. Mitch and I are talking today with Steve Vladek, author of The Shadow Docket. Steve, let me put some numbers to the changes that you were pointing out about the shadow docket. During the 16 years of the Bush and Obama administrations, the government only asked the Supreme Court for emergency relief eight times. Eight times over two presidential administrations. 
During the four years of the Trump administration, the court was asked by the government for immediate relief 41 times. To me, I mean, Mitchell, that, that statistic, I think, is quite telling. What's just as telling is how often the court acquiesced. The Trump administration sought emergency relief from the Supreme Court 41 times in four years. That was a 20-fold increase over its predecessors. Right. Um, and the court granted that relief in whole or in part in 28 of those cases, meaning on average seven times a year. And this is just when the Trump administration was asking. The Supreme Court was stepping in in a context in which it previously would not have stepped in to allow President Trump to carry out policies lower courts had blocked, to allow him to carry out executions lower courts had blocked. Mitchell, the data there is helpful not just in showing what was different, but we finally had a critical mass of cases where you could actually start to draw generalizations about the court's behavior that was much harder when the court is only granting one or two or three of them a term. One of the examples that you give in the book is an emergency stay that was granted around the Alabama district maps that would have required Alabama to redraw their district maps before the 2022 election and probably would have guaranteed at least one more Democratic seat in the House. And that had a real effect, not just in Alabama, but in Georgia and Louisiana as well. And so the shadow docket and the use of it seems to have actually tipped the balance of power in Congress. This is, I think, exactly the most striking recent example. And I didn't have the benefit of the court's ruling this June when the book came out. But just to put this in context, last February, a 5-4 majority with no explanation, save for a two-justice concurrence, which you know doesn't speak for the court, allowed Alabama to use congressional maps that lower courts said violated the Voting Rights Act. You can draw a straight line from the Alabama ruling to similar rulings in Louisiana and Georgia. And with just one slight additional leap, you can get to rulings in Ohio and South Carolina. And so right there, you've got five congressional seats at a minimum that in the 2022 cycle were safe Republican seats that had they been drawn in accordance with the lower court rulings, you know, you can't guarantee a Democrat would have been elected, but sure. certainly the odds were much higher that they at least be lean Democratic seats, given the, the way they would have had to been drawn. And the Republicans currently have a five-seat majority in the House. I mean, you switch five members from Republican to Democrat, and you've got a tied House right now. And it would be one thing if the court's intervention last February was simply previewing the merits. We're going to uphold Alabama's maps next year, so why not let them use them now? I have problems with that, even if that were the narrative. But for the court to then turn around as it did in June and say, actually, the district courts were right. Alabama's maps are unlawful, is such a powerful illustration of the impact these rulings have where Alabama and four other states were able to use unlawful maps that perhaps affected the balance of power in Congress because of unsigned, unexplained orders from the Supreme Court. And I, I don't know how you crystallize more directly why these orders are important and why it's important that the court treat these orders as important. As I mentioned previously, this process resulted in an unsigned, unexplained decision on a critical election case without public oral arguments or published opinions or dissents. This resulted in the public being denied the legal reasoning in an election case that theoretically may have changed the balance of political power and policy in the U.S. Congress. 
I don't think that it is a stretch to say that this behavior by the Supreme Court supports a system that begins to sound more similar to an authoritarian regime than a representative democracy. From the court's own telling, its authority comes from its ability to provide principled justifications for its decision-making, not because we're going to agree with the principles that the justices espouse, but because hopefully we will at least agree that they are principles. When the court is handing down rulings with significant practical and increasingly legal consequences and providing no justification, it is not just opening it up to charges that it's acting as sort of a font of partisan political power, not judicial power, but it is depriving us, all of us, of the best defense of the court's behavior, which is we did this because the law compels it. We are going to take another brief break from our discussion with Steve Vladek, author of The Shadow Docket. When we return, we're going to ask Steve to put the current use, or some may argue abuse, of this secretive process into historical context. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Monterey College of Law. I am a first-generation law student. I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede. To learn more or apply, visit MontereyLaw.edu. Welcome back. Our guest today is Steve Vladek, author of The Shadow Docket, an in-depth look at a secretive and little understood process that the current Supreme Court is using to decide an increasing number of important cases. I want to just put our discussion about the shadow docket and how the court is using it in a broader context about the really the Supreme Court's lack of accountability, in some people's views, arrogance. Do you see the court's increasing use of the shadow docket as part of a larger legitimacy question about the court? Absolutely. And I think that the magic word is accountability. When we try to figure out like what is different about the Supreme Court today versus prior Supreme Courts, it's not that it has a conservative majority. We've had conservative majorities in the past. It's not its relationship with precedent. We've had aggressive revisions of precedent in the court in the past. To me, the really big difference is this is a court that neither believes itself to be nor thinks it ought to be accountable to the political branches. That's new. So that now folks are actually really surprised to discover that the Supreme Court relies on an annual appropriation 
from Congress to do everything except pay the justices' salaries. The shadow docket is one of the, the many symptoms of what happens when you have an unaccountable court with a solid majority of either side. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything inherently conservative or Republican about the fact that this is where we are. I think it's just that this happens to coincide with a Republican supermajority on the court. Steve, we continue to have discussions about the lack of a code of ethics for the Supreme Court. How does the issue of accountability and public trust play into this issue? On the ethics front, Mitchell, part of what drives me crazy is that shouldn't we have some independent arbiter? The absence of a mechanism by which anyone other than the justices have any meaningful say over what the justices are doing creates this permanent feedback loop where those who are suspicious of the current majority see nefarious things behind every headline. Those who like the current majority see all of this as an effort to undermine the majority. And the place where I would have thought we could have found common cause is, wouldn't it be nice if there was some mechanism by which we could all have faith that the bad actions are being identified and remedied? and the good ones are not being misrepresented. What's your biggest concern going into 2024 as it relates to the Supreme Court and its docket? Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature case. Now you have the possibility that we're going to have, you know, last minute eve of election or day after election emergency applications about whether a tipping point state can count a subcategory of ballots where the fight turns on whether this is on the good side or the bad side of Moore versus Harper, and where that's going to be litigated almost entirely as an emergency application. That would be a disaster, almost no matter how it turned out. And yet, it's really hard to look at what happened in 2020, 2022, and not think that that's distinctly possible. It's not just that these are things that matter. I think we all understand why they matter. It's that there's a mentality among too many of us that these are things that only lawyers can ever really understand. And I think we should increasingly be thinking about our jobs as educating not just the students in front of us, but the students around us out in the public. Steve, thank you so much for your time as a guest on Sidebar today. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, and I can tell you that it's going to become required reading in our constitutional law class, and I suspect in law schools across the country. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I I hope folks will take the book seriously, read it for yourselves and decide. I throw some elbows toward the end of the book in my criticisms, and I don't expect everyone to agree with me about the criticisms, but I hope it's at least context that everyone will find useful in thinking about the Supreme Court. Thanks, Steve. Jackie, this discussion with Stephen Vladek was exactly what I had hoped that we would have. I share your thoughts that his book, The Shadow Docket, did an excellent job of explaining the serious changes that are underway at the Supreme Court, particularly in the manner that they're handing down decisions and making law. We've been discussing our concerns about the court's unwillingness to enact and publish a code of ethics, and now we learn that the use of this procedural shortcut, described as the shadow docket, denies the public any opportunity to hear oral arguments, read party briefs, or receive written opinions, including both majority and dissenting opinions. 
the extent to which this is being used by the current court took me by surprise. Mitch, I agree. I consider myself to be someone who pays attention to what's happening in in the court. And I have to admit the depth of the changes that have occurred and how the court has used this emergency docket to really change law and affect people's lives in a really meaningful way took me by surprise. What was so powerful for me about Steve's book is he gives very specific examples about how a decision on the shadow docket has then had a very large impact, not just on people's lives, but it has actually changed the direction that the law was going with maybe a two-sentence opinion or decision that was rendered at 2 a.m. in the morning on a Wednesday when no one's paying attention and people don't understand the significance of it. And I think that's a real problem for the court's legitimacy. The Pew Research Foundation just came out with a new survey on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, and it is, not surprisingly, at its absolutely lowest point. What's problematic about that is that that's all the court has, is its legitimacy for people to believe in and follow the mandates that they give down, we have to believe in the legitimacy of the court and we have to understand why they made the decisions that they made. And none of that's happening as it relates to the shadow docket. Jackie, once you have the third branch of government, in this case, the Supreme Court, making decisions that are dramatically affecting the elections of both of the other branches of government, the Senate, the House, and potentially the presidency, we have disrupted the careful balance of our democratic republic. I am very concerned, and I hope that all of our listeners are as well. We generally like to end our episodes on a positive note about what each of us can do to improve our systems of justice and democracy. However, I must say that this is one topic that I am unclear about what we as citizens can actually do. I'll leave us with this. As Steve pointed out, Congress can take action. Congress does have the power to change what's happening at the Supreme Court level, both with an ethics bill as well as with some of the other things that Steve brought up. We have an opportunity and I think a responsibility to pressure our representatives and our senators to take action. And I think what Steve was trying to point out is This isn't a Republican or Democratic partisan issue. This is a problem for everyone. And we should all be concerned about it. And we all should speak to those who actually have the power to change it, which is our representatives and senators. Once again, I want to thank everyone who joined us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to know what's on your mind. You can reach us at sidebarmedia.org. Sidebar would not be possible without our producer, David Eakin, who also composes and performs all of the Sidebar music. Thank you also to GoGo Zoger, who manages Sidebar's marketing and social media. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. 
For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.